Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Welcome back to Hashing It Out. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Corey Petty, with my co-host, Colin Couchet. Say what's up, everybody, Mr. Colin. What's up, everybody, Mr. Colin? Today. Hello. Today. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first time somebody responded. That's fantastic. Nice. Uh, <laughs> today's episode, we're going to talk about TrueBit, um, all about their, their new hot-off-the-press coin structure, as well as TrueBit as, as a company itself and what it's trying to do. Uh, we have Jason Toich with us, the founder, um, CEO. Yeah. Founder and CEO of TrueBit. Uh, welcome to the show. Um, happy to talk about you, uh, talk with you. Um, for those that don't know who you are, would you mind giving a quick introduction as to um, how you got into the space and what TrueBit is trying to accomplish? How I got into the space. So I am a mathematician by by training. So. I started into blockchain when I was working at the National University of Singapore and did a paper, I guess, first paper we did was on the verifier's dilemma, um, the paper that Tribute was, the, the problem that Tribute would later solve. Um, and that was, I don't know, early 2015, worked on that. So before the launch of Ethereum and I believe it's maybe the first academic publication about the network since it came out before the launch, but basically explained why Ethereum has a gas limit. So, and I mean, why it needs it. In other words, I mean, the, the short answer is if you take away the gas limit, then you break the consensus of the network. So, um, so it was sort of a kind of a simple principle, but something that we were able to sort of analyzed formally and then spent the next years of my life trying to figure out, well, given that we're stuck with this verifier's dilemma, you know, how do we compute stuff with the, you know, do large computations with the same security that you would expect from, from a smart contract. So that's, that's really what the Trubit project is about. It's a, Trubit is a computation oracle where you can, anybody can submit a task anybody else can get a reward for um, solving it so so it's a it's a from from the point of view i mean it's true is a purely functional application in other words you're if you're the task giver that in this case you would expect to be another smart contract it's going to say here's a function f and here's a function x send that to the true smart contract and it calls back with an output um, f of x so a little bit of, um, you know, I guess we introduced a new kind of architecture or one of the first projects to experiment with WebAssembly, which, you know, fortunately has become more mainstream over the last um, couple of years. And then on top of that, some, you know, one of the first 
you know, experiments in, in crypto economics, which was the incentive layer um, of TrueBit. So um, I don't know if that happened. How TrueBit works a little bit too, but. Um, yeah, because I actually have a buddy who who speaks like volumes of praise about your project. Um, um, uh, uh, Ori Steele from Transmute Industry, and he's right. he's 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 really like loves what you guys are doing, and he was very much like you guys got to have him on last year. And we had Harley on last year, um, and Harley gives kind of like the uh, the um, a really good overview of how things work. But I want to hear it from your perspective. Um, so my understanding is just kind of a bounty system going on with um, with uh, finding you know uh, Byzantine validators, I guess you could call them, um, for code. So maybe you could go through the kind of like the structure of how Truebit can um, achieve a, a level of certainty about the uh, output produced from code that's computed by you know actors you don't know. Sure, I would first of all, Ori Steele, uh, great developer contributed very substantially to to our project as well just you know as an open source contributor um you know he and transmute were um built the the pipeline which takes in you know c c plus plus rust code and and allows us to turn that into a trubit task so that was um you know he was a you know, made a very very big contribution there so yeah we're very um, grateful to, to ori but um in terms of how the system works um yeah there's nothing really uh, byzantine about truebit i mean we're uh, the assumption of basically rational actors in the system um and there are no distinguished nodes or there's no sort of hierarchy and we'll see perhaps later in this talk the way that we carry that all the way through to the token model and you know try to minimize governance until well it, maybe it isn't even there sort of i mean Obviously, you know, Bitcoin has governance as well, too, but it's not, you know, really at the protocol level. Um, so, so anyway, so, so, so you have rational actors and then the, basically the, the assumption we make on the system is that Ethereum, let's, let's take this from the perspective of Ethereum. Obviously we could run on other platforms that have smart contract support, but smart contracts compute correctly. They just don't compute very much. Okay, so 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 uh, at the the core of the Tribute protocol has basically two layers to it. At the core is what we call a dispute resolution. In other words, if a solver comes in and says, "I made this computation. Here's a solution," verifier says, "I don't agree with the solution." They can sort effectively take this. The verifier can effectively take the, the solver to court, and the judge in that court are the Ethereum miners. So the smart contract essentially, assumption again, the judge always computes correctly, but can't actually run this large computation itself. So what does it do? It forces these two parties to play what we call a verification game, which basically amounts to running um, a binary search to find the first step of the computation where they disagree. And now, you know, sort of the magic of the architecture is that that step is small enough that we can actually run that one step on chain. And then you can see, okay, we got what this solver said, so no problem. Otherwise, we, we've detected an error and then, you know, it's, it's found to be bogus. But then, of course, on top of that, or I could pause there and say, are there any questions? 
Yeah. Uh, so, uh, well, so from what I understand, it's pretty much just random checking of like verifying. Is that correct? Is there some sort of like, like not every piece of code is always checked by by like all the time? Is it? So we th this is this is just a, a a way of resolving disputes. We didn't explain, you know, who is this verifier and why did they show up in the first place? So that's that's the second part because we didn't. It's not. It's not completely satisfying, you know, to say, okay, you, you issue the task and then you go check it yourself. That's not really how smart contracts work, for example. So, um, so what you really want is a black box where you can put it in and know that you're getting out the right answer. But at the same time, the people who are solving it are, are completely, you know, just anonymous miners, like in any other network. So or not any other network, but let's say, um, like, like the miners of Ethereum or, or Bitcoin. So, so what what we do on top of this dispute resolution layer is add in an incentive layer, which essentially says um, gives the incentives for, for participating. So obviously it's not quite enough just to offer a reward for people to do ver verification of the of the solution because yeah, they might say, yeah, I checked it, but you know, maybe they, you, you incentivize participation but not necessarily correctness. And if you pay, if you, if you, um, on the other hand, if you said, okay, I'm going to pay anybody who finds a mistake, but there are never any, no, there never actually occurs any mistakes. So then nobody actually shows up to look for the mistakes. So in this case, you're incentivizing um, correctness, but not participation. But what you really need is both. So, so in the original protocol, what we do is to um, do what we call a forced error. So occasionally, randomly, unpredictably, the solver has to give the wrong answer. And therefore, since these mistakes exist, the verifiers are checking, even in those cases, since they don't know what it is, they're also checking when the solver is supposed to give the right answer. So since solvers always being watched, they always give the right, always giving the right answer. So it's sort of like, uh, yeah, right. Verifiers show up because there's they, they have an expected reward and the solvers behave correctly because they're always being watched. So it's the panopticon effect. So basically, in summary, it's like you eject like things that will error the like error cause an invalid answer. Is that correct? Or uh, and you can detect where that problem happens. And if if they execute something and that that error is there, then you know they're still behaving correctly. This incentivizes people to go out and double check the, to watch the watchman. Basically, is that is that what I'm understanding properly? Well, they are anybody anybody can show up and be the. There's only one solver for every task. That's just chosen randomly among those people who participate. But it's not a, a trusted party, right? Uh -huh. Anybody can show up and verify. So it's like a unanimous consensus protocol. You can think of it that way. Okay. And, and so so yeah, I mean basically, that's. That's that's right. So, um, and from there, did you? Is, this is how things currently operate, or did the token model that was currently introduced somewhat change this in terms of how it operates? So, no, the token model is sort of another layer on top of the incentive layer, um, and essentially, we've stuck. We've been stayed true to the original white paper and followed it fairly religiously. And, you know, there was, uh, after the initial paper came out in March, we got a lot of feedback from the community, which was incorporated into an appendix, which came out later in 
in 2017, and we basically um, stuck with that. So again, if the interested reader can refer to the white paper for all of the details and sort of, you know, you know, what if this happens and what if that happens, it's mostly um, covered there. Although we did do a little bit, small amount of touch up if you go all the way to the end of the new token white paper, which was just came out uh, earlier this, this month. And um, so, 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 so yeah, basically that, that, all of that is, is sort of. So let me, let me, um, let me try to go through a user journey here because that's the perspective I would come in at, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm somebody who wants to um, do some, um, I want to offload my compute to somebody, anybody. I just want the results back, right? And that's all I want to care. That's all I really care about is those results that I get back are correct. Um, I don't care if it's public or not. I don't care any of that stuff. Like, let's say I'm just farming out. I want to I wanna farm out, like, let's say, a compute resource to scrape uh, a series of websites. Like, I don't know if that's a valid use case or not. But, like, you know, I don't want to do this on my network, and I'd, and I'd like to just distribute that, that load across a, a bunch of various various nodes. Now, I'm not sure if the WASM you use actually has access to that kind of stuff or not, but let's, uh, I can't really think of a better example unless you have one. Um, well, of tasks to be done on Truebit, I mean, well, a simple one would be the original one that we, that motivated the, the project in the first place, which was to check a Dogecoin, you know, escrow proof of work, because what you can't do with an ordinary smart contract, and obviously that was aimed at building a bridge between Dogecoin and Ethereum. So, so that's the original use case for it, but. So, okay. so yeah, you don't it's, want to perform proof of work. Not, it's not something on the blockchain. You can, what's that? <laughs> you don't want to perform proof of work on the blockchain. Um, well, I mean, Bitcoin proof of work might be fine, right? I mean, if you're just if it's in, for example, SHA two fifty six, I think there's already an opcode for it, and so you know, it's it's also not very taxing to check, mm -hmm. you know, compute the hash and see that it actually. Um, so, you know, checking a Bitcoin proof of work is much easier than checking. A Dogecoin proof of work. Yeah, script. Yeah. So the use cases for this are 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 they relegated to what the realm of smart contracts and what they sh they could perform right now? Is that is that kind of like where you were thinking? Is it stays within the decentralization space, or was this like actually like renting off compute somewhere else? Which is what I think my original understanding was. Is that yeah? It? You can you can certainly think about that. I mean the. I mean, obviously it's really interesting to think about, um, you know, machine learning applications. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So for example, the, the, the art DAO, you know, the, the machine that produces the art and then sells the art and uses the revenue from that to sustain itself. That's one of the, you know, I say the key, key things that we're thinking about um, right now, but that's, um, you know, uh, there, you know, obviously there's, if you're, if you're gonna do, if you actually wanna do, machine learning on, on, on the chain and you want to sort of use some sort of tool like this. Um, right. Yeah. So, and I guess I can connect the dots there a little bit more, but um, essentially, yeah, I mean, or, or if you want to check, you know, live peer transcoding, for example, that was already one of our earliest um, collaborators. So there, live peer does decentralized live streaming video. And anybody can do the transcoding from well, from from 
you know, into the different video formats, to the different resolutions. And obviously you want to make sure that that's done correctly. And so, so you can, you know, send, put that out to TrueVit. So in terms of going out and gathering data from other websites raises additional challenges as well, right? I mean, like, so great. So TrueVit can compute, but how do you actually get the data into the, into the system? So that, that is also, um, you know, it's obviously something very um, important. Um, so in, in terms of the way that the native system works now, there are the, you can use, there are basically uh, three file types, right? I mean, you can have, in, you, can, you can read in from, directly from the blockchain, you could read in from something that's permanently stored in a smart contract, or you could do it from IPFS. And before you dismiss IPFS as being insecure, you know, you have to consider that if you set up your incentives correctly in such a way that the person who would be doing um, the verification is also the one who provided the data, then, you know, IPFS can actually be perfectly fine way to get the data inside. Um, but obviously, you know, we can support other, other data types um, as well. So, so there's, there's, that is, that is certainly another so going back to the user story, let's just go with the website thing because I think it's easier and really concrete for I think a lot of people to actually understand, okay? Like I, I want I have this huge like website that I want to scrape. Let's just say it's a patent office website, okay? We want to really like see what the patent office is up to. Like just scrape all the patents, right? So you write this script to scrape all the patents, but obviously this takes a long time and you don't want to get caught and you want to bypass like any sort of thing like that. So maybe there's a little malfeasance here, I don't know. But you want to scrape all the all the patent data. So you put out a root site to crawl, and then you want people to kind of like go out and respond with the next site and the, the information that they received from this site. Is that, and then you can continue that process. Is that sort of like something you could maybe do with like, like Truebit? And if so, how do I as a user, like get your prop, get, get, get the Truebit, Truebit working on my system and then start writing stuff that can actually do that sort of thing. Yeah, so I guess, I guess the question, the first question is, do you really need a blockchain for that, right? I mean, when you look at sort of what, what you can do with, I mean, Truebit is, is great for, um, you know, sort of, you know, the trustless computation in the, in the public blockchain. It's clear to see how it would work. I mean, I think the way it would make more sense in this context would be is if you properly set up the incentives so that you didn't have to scrape here and there, but that people, the patent office itself was actually incentivized to contribute that data. And I think really managing sort of the, uh, you know, who has access to which data, that's, there's, there's some subtlety to that. And as it, as it comes, you know, I can turn this also back to the, the case of the, of the art DAO, you know, what really makes the machine valuable that you're creating in the case of like an art DAO or perhaps this scraping machine is, you know, sort of the, the ownership of it. Like this, this notion that, well, I don't trust anyone, so I'm going to use a blockchain. I don't want anyone to have access to the data. Well, if, 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 no, if, if, if no one has access, then, you know, there's, then Truebit doesn't have access either, right? I mean, so it's, it's sort of like, you gotta, you can't, that's too, um, I guess it's, it's, it's too, um, it's, not, it's not fine grained enough, right? I mean, but what you can do is, is set the thing up so that you can sort of 
fine 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 grain control over over who actually can access these things, and then it starts to really make sense where you would have you know an, an ecosystem of, of data that that people would have have an a, have, have access to. Because so, you give me like a ideal use case of someone saying, "I want to use. I'm making something. I want to set it up in such a way that the blockchain manages that thing, but the but Truebit does the majority of the computation, and then provides the answer maybe back into the blockchain. I'm assuming that's that kind of the use case here. Right. Well, I mean, I guess we've already touched on a few of them. I mean, I guess mm -hmm. we can talk about some other examples as well. Like, I mean, certainly. I think insurance is another place where these things can come up, you know, and, and for example, you know, auditing of the of, of smart contracts. I mean, what's nice about Truebit if you're actually, you know, anyone could say, here's an insurance contract, I, I verified these properties, you know, if ever, if ever one of them gets violated, well, you know, you have to use a tool like Truebit to check that it actually happened on chain, the data's already there, great. Or maybe it's because, you know, we want to make sure that everybody's getting fair insurance rates, right? And so somehow, uh, you know those those things can be um, computed on chain, but I mean we also talked talked about you know checking proof of work, which is good for building two way pegs. Talked about transcoding. I mean machine learning. Mm -hmm. As you said, these are these are all. I mean I don't know if we want to walk through you know one. No, I just want. I wanted to get like kind of like a broad like, a, like I wanted people to understand like why would I go out and use Truebit as opposed to doing something without a blockchain in the first place and. And, I, and what I kind of wanted to transition into after that was um, introduction of the token was, I mean, the way I understand it, or the, the token system for that matter, is um, how do you task these things appropriately? I and mean, how do you price these things appropriately? So each of, these, each of these things that you're doing, you're, you're sending off for Truebit to do, how do you understand what the appropriate price is for each of these tasks and in such oh, a way yes. where you're not relying on someone else to make that make that decision for you. So yeah, and maybe maybe we just take a step back and generally say, you know, what who what are the general reason you would use Truebit? Well, first of all, save gas. Any computation you do on Truebit is going to be a lot cheaper than than getting the miners to do it um, on the network. And Probably. gas limit for that matter, it doesn't fit with the gas block. limit. Well, I mean, yeah, it's it's right. So it's it's also the convenience of that, but also you know, you don't have to worry about spacing your computation over multiple blocks and then putting them back together. And it's so that's difficult. But then there's also I mean, if you even can do it, because obviously a smart contract can't even read back more than 256 blocks in Ethereum, for example. Secondly, um, you know, we're able to issue these tasks using standard programming languages, um, you know, what basically whatever compiles to WebAssembly, including C, C++, Rust. So, you know, if you want to run FFmpeg, you're not going to have to re re transcribe that into Solidity. You know, you can just use the original code. And same for like Dogecoin proof of work, um, uh, which is, you know, C++ code, for example. And so, so there's that. But you asked about the pricing. So, yeah, there is that. That's one effect of the pricing. But yeah, so there is. And, and just as a prerequisite here, you know, just to distinguish ourselves from pricing that you would get from using like a cloud service like Amazon, for example, where, you know, maybe, maybe Amazon just sets the price. I mean, there's, there, I mean, you might think, oh, well, we'll just let the task giver set the price. And if a solver wants to do it, then they'll, they'll accept the task, right? I mean, that's sort of like, 
um, the naive sort of marketplace mm -hmm. approach to it. The problem with doing that in a protocolic true bit is that, well, uh, what if the task giver is also a smart contract, task giver actually intentionally underprices the task, un underprices the task because he doesn't actually want somebody else to solve it. So he's going to solve it himself and gets whatever bogus answer he wants. And now you've sort of broken the security of that smart contract. So in other words, you don't want, you don't want a system where, where the task giver chooses the price. So we have to sort of relieve from that. What you want is sort of a market price, which has two properties from the task giver point of view, right? You want to have something that says, if I, if I bought a task, um, you know, if I paid for a hundred tasks, I can do them now. I can do them tomorrow. I can do them three weeks from now. And it doesn't depend on whether, you know, uh, the, the price of, um, either, you know, went to, you know, skyrocketed or, or crashed. Like I paid for this service. You're paying for a resource. You should be able to use that resource appropriately whenever you want. Exactly. I mean, I gave this example in the, in the, in the paper, you know, you have, if you have a pilot who's flying from, from LA to Tokyo and the price of gas goes up by 20% while he's in midair, he doesn't want to, and that means the gas evaporated. Well, great. Now he's gone to Hawaii instead of Tokyo, not the outcome that, that you want for a, I mean, and I think that's just a general principle. The hard part, let's face it, the hard part in, in challenging this um, in this project and in this space in general is not to find the miner, but to find the task giver right? who's, who's actually going to pay for these services. And so it's fine. So, so, so that's, that's point number one is that you, you get what you pay for. And the other thing is you want to make sure that, you're, that the price is something that someone actually would actually pay for it, a reasonable price relative to us dollar or whatever fiat currency you're you're feeling um, comfortable with and obviously you know it goes without saying you want to do this without using some sort of um price oracle right i mean it doesn't it shouldn't all come down to you know coin market cap coming into the right yeah. feeding in the right price after you've gone to all this problem to make everything decentralized so so that's from the from the point of view is yeah you need to have a price that's reasonable in us dollars but it also reflects you know the actual product that's being sold and then if you look on the supply side obviously we sort of know what what works there if i'm using my compute resources to solve this task for somebody else i want to make sure that i i got fairly remunerated for that and so generally you know we know how how mining works right i mean you sort of you you build a network effect around that token but in this case you know we also have to the service providers collectively have to sort of steer the the price of the task in with respect to us dollar right so so that's that's the other side of the paper it's being about you know how to so how do we do that so let me again so i, I just just so we don't at least feel that we're too far in the weeds for the moment we can just take the TrueBit protocol as a black box, which has these three functions, right? I mean, you have tasking, you know, there's a, there's three things you're doing with a token, right? You're, you're issuing, there's issuing tasks, paying for those tasks. You're receiving a reward for doing those tasks. And then you also have this staking um, piece. In other words, I, if I'm going to participate as a solver, I need to have 
stake in the network so that we have enough funds to play the verification game. This is disincentivized spam. So this is different from Bitcoin where you can just turn on your computer and start mining Bitcoin. No, here you actually, you gotta have some, some stake in the network. So there's, again, I mentioned three functions. I didn't say, you know, we didn't say yet which token goes with which function. Um, and so that's, that's where the sort of the design get becomes interesting. So, so what we do with, with Truebit, and this is you know, perhaps a general setup that might be useful for other projects as well, where you have a consumer and a service provider. So you have the CPU that's being used for tasks. You have another token called, which we call TRU, used for the rewards. And for the staking, we actually use both. So, so and you might say, well, uh, isn't this, is this, well, ask, you know, is this overly, is this not overly complicated, you know? Why two tokens, and in particular, why why two staking tokens? Um, and you know why? In fact, why even a token at all, right? I mean, maybe that's even the the first question. Um, so maybe, so yeah. Let me take a step back. Why why you know why why aren't you just using the question A? Why aren't you just using ETH? Why question two? Why aren't you just using? Um, die right so you're asking so all the questions i would ask so keep keep going so yeah i'm, I'm just <laughs> i'm guessing so I'll, I'll let you ask it uh well which one would you like to answer let's look at eth because that's that's sort of maybe yeah it's the native token let's let's just use use that one well can i, I inject a question before you do that because i i, I are we sure. directly buying cpu tokens and true tokens or are we only buying true tokens to buy cpu tokens who's for who's we uh anybody who wants to use your bit system um so like if, if I want to acquire Truebit, do I convert from something like how do I? Where's my point of entry? Yeah, and so that 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 is a, a third question. Yeah, which we can uh, go to. I mean, the, the point of entry is 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 something that we can talk about as well. What I would explain here is what is the steady state supposed to look like and then so in other words my preference would be to go in the opposite order and say here's what we're aiming for and now that we see that wh where we are now let's if we have time at the end we can sort of explain you know how do you actually bootstrap this thing and, and obviously there's a problem that, in the, that that is exactly the problem the beginning okay so there i can i can earn rewards but in order to do that i had to have a stake in the network and somebody somebody else had to have the, the token in order to issue the task so it would seem that a priori, you're 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 chicken and egg problem here. Yeah, like I, I looked at that. It, yeah. it is chicken and egg, and, and you know, as we'll see, you know, it's also interesting because you know, the, because as you see, what what what's coming in is one token, what's coming out is another. It also suggests that you know, there's a a mint and minting and burning function inside of the system, which which is sort of um, you know, it, before we sort of. What I want to do is sort of break, what I'm trying to do in, in, in particular, breaking these token functions down is so that we can isolate sort of what is the main function that we want to get without sort of convoluting it with the bootstrapping, which is sort of secondary. So anyway, so that, that is how I'm approaching this. So let's talk about, let's focus on the steady state. Um, obviously one steady state is just says says, well, not at a high level, just use Ethereum, just use Ether. And this is pretty simple. If you if you're if, for, if you just use Ether, then you 
are going to have trouble getting those three properties that I mentioned earlier. Particularly stability uh, on resources. I'd imagine. Yes, all three. So there's two on the two on the task side and one on the supply side because as greater use of ether means essentially higher USD prices, or in the case of what we saw in 2017, you know, greater speculation perhaps uh, increases. Mm -hmm. It's it's the same effect, right? It doesn't matter if it's by use or or speculation. Um, well, because the speculation is also because the miners didn't adjust the prices correctly. So if they had, perhaps. How much might how much computation my ether buys changes drastically with the price of ether, which is not what you want. If I were to pre-purchase something and expect a certain amount of resources, yeah, well, I mean, it wouldn't it wouldn't be bad for the consumer if it got cheaper. But what happens is it gets more expensive. So as more people are using the system, it becomes more expensive to use it, and therefore um, it doesn't scale. So so you're you're that that just simply isn't. I, it, it, this seems to be a fundamental problem with the with the with the one token um, solution. Okay, fine. So that that's basically the the ether answers the ether question. Question two: What about Dai? Um, obviously, Dai has the advantage that it's sort of or or when I say Dai, I mean basically any stable coin that would be somehow pegged to the U.S. dollar, not to and and so. Um, so first of all, this again, doesn't solve the basic question of price. So I, I'm gonna pay for a task. Great, you're gonna pay and die. How many die? And again, if we can't, if the task giver can't set the price, then, then who does? So it doesn't solve the question of, doesn't solve the problem of how to price the task. So that's, that's uh, a big problem. And then, you know, obviously we all want to have these network effects, a system which sort of aligns the minor incentives, by miners here, I mean solvers and verifiers who are performing these tasks. Um, and um, and third, the other, again, same problem again. We want, what we really want is a token that is stable relative to this, to the, um, to the, to the product. Not, we don't actually care if the price of US dollar changes relative to the Euro or or relative yeah, to whatever resource you're giving whatever, it needs to be like, the same i i paid for three tasks i should get three tasks and it's not like oh i you know maybe i'm happy i'm lucky you know things got cheaper and i got four tasks but equally annoyed are the people who only got two when they paid for three so that's just basic customer service um okay so you have the so from there i think that's 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 decent did you introduce the you, you seem to believe that the two coin or two token model solves these issues between the CPU, CPU token and the TRU token. How does it do that? Right, so let's, let's take a look at our bag of tricks here. So as I, as I alluded to earlier, we're talking about um, a dual staking model. And what, what happens with dual staking? So again, assume that your solver has access to both TRU and CPU somehow. And he's going to stake both the CPU and TRU tokens and also provide what we call a local price between the two. So he's going to say, this is what I believe TRU is worth relative to CPU. And now in order to make sure he gave the right local price, we have the staking monitors that can actually exchange at that rate. So if you said, okay, I, I think one CPU is worth 
nine TRUs and I happen to come on with one CPU, now I can, if I like that rate, I'm just gonna trade my coins at the rate that you said was okay. Now let's say minus 20% so that because of, you know, just as the idea is this is a, this isn't supposed to be necessarily an exchange, but just a, an enforcement of the price so that give you some buffer there. Anyway, so that you want to, you get a correct local price. And now what you do is we can take a median over all the local prices to get sort of a global price. And again, you know, we emphasize that we have not now appealed to any price oracle, but that's, that is the rate that one can, within this Trubit system, burn TRU and obtain CPU in exchange at this median rate, so-called tasking, median tasking conversion rate. If you want to go in the other direction, um, you know, we have another mechanism for doing that, which we call private task, which should, it entails opening up the protocol a bit more, but it's not a, it's not too complicated. Basically, you just issue a task to yourself. Okay, fine. So, and obviously, you know, just to um, allude to the, to the earlier question um, that uh, actually you can sort of generalize this dual staking to external tokens as well. So that's one way of, you know, leveraging existing liquid tokens to sort of, um, uh, you know, allow people to access the, the, the system, at least through, through tasking. Right. right. And but it's still like what, you know, the bootstrapping problem seems really problematic for me as a new user who wants to join the system. Do I buy true with ETH? In which case I still have the kind of single token problem, don't I? Um, if you want to buy true with ETH. So if you, yeah, so, 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 so that's, in, in terms, uh, yeah, there, there's, we haven't solved this problem yet. So obviously, um, from the tasking side, you know, we can have, you know, by modifying this um, two token uh, conversion, I guess we would say, you can do it with by adding in a third token, which would essentially, you know, providing a rate for that other external token, whatever you want to say, ETH, and then um, doing something uh, similar, given that we already know the conversion between TRU and CP5. Um, you know, in the, in the, there are basically, my, I have three sort of suggestions for ways that, that, to get around this, this problem. One is, so in the long run, I think it is reasonable to do external tasking. I mean, it's also a value that's being added to those um, tokens that would be somehow whitelisted. So again, once you start whitelisting tokens, it comes to the governance question arises again. So that's, that is, um, but it's just about who's in and who's out basically. And, you know, there are different ways that a business can perhaps take advantage of that structure. I mean, the other thing you can do is to just explicitly, and this is probably a very short term strategy, but to allow staking with external tokens before any market price has been established. Let's just say, okay, for now you can use ether to stake in the network. And then as, Rewards. So imagine the, the ideal distribution here is that everybody just simply mines and receives TRU rewards. And that's a sort of a wide generic distribution of the, of those tokens. And you need just some stake in the network in order to sort of initially participate. But as more people are gaining the rewards, well, then they can start 
staking with TRU, converting it to CPU, perhaps selling those tokens to um, other users. And then, so, so that's, that's pattern number two. The third pattern is, is really an explicit governance structure in which um, you have a, introduced a third token. In paper, it's called, we call it DAO. And that is convertible to, to either TRU or CPU tokens. And that is somehow distributed through one of the many known, uh, you know, there are many, obviously there are many token distribution methods that have been applied. You know, for example, we have our interactive coin offering protocol that uh, is, was, for example, used by Claros, but um, so, but then, you know, it could have a particular property since there's no sort of supply of TRU and CPU is a little bit indefinite. Um, what the governance token could do is, for example, say you get you've if if it were, um, you know, uh, for example, it, it might say you have rights to five percent of the network, so you can cash these this number of governance five percent of the governance tokens in for five percent of the whatever number of uh, network tokens are existing in TRU or CPU at the moment. So, well, so, so those are the ideas. Something I was thinking just now is. If you're just trying to bootstrap yourself onto the network, does it really matter? Like you can tie up your true in a staking mechanism and use that to um, to uh, to uh, run. So you use true to basically incentivize somebody to. Uh, you could buy true or CPU; it doesn't matter. Once you're kind of in, all you have to do is do the work for a little while, and you start getting rewards, and it starts like working working with you and you start getting more and more and more of this stuff so it's almost like you know it's just like a preparatory state where you have you can't just join it willy-nilly um or you could just transfer to yourself if you already have an existing system Wait, hold on what i'm a user i want to use TrueBit. yeah what am i how do i pay for computation as well as how do i know how much computation i'm buying when i have a task i've, I've made a task how do I know how much that's worth, and what do I what do I use to pay for it? Ah, so this is a another interesting question. But let me let me um, revert to to Colin first, which is that, um, and I think just to emphasize what he said, you don't need a lot of stake to participate in the network. Somehow, by hook or by crook, you come up with five dollars worth of TRU, which is plenty for for a stake. And you know maybe it comes for, through a Uniswap contract or something. So the entry point is not, it's not like you need, you don't necessarily have to be on an, a centralized exchange ever. It, it, it's, not, it's not required. To answer your, 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 your second question, quite about how do I know that I'm getting paid properly for these, for these tasks? So obviously as a, as, a, as a design principle, if you have a machine that's, you know, there's some input into the into the uh, machine where people are paying for something. Another one, people are paying out. What you don't want to have is what you can't have essentially is a situation where people where the machine is paying out more than it's more than that's being paid into it. And maybe this goes without saying, but if you if you do it like that, then um, you uh, uh, you basically incentivize spam, right? I mean, I'm going to issue myself tasks. I'm going to get rich by solving my own tasks. 
And now, so great, everybody gets rich, but in the end, nobody gets rich because the thing is just worthless. Nobody. Yeah, but still, it has, that didn't quite answer my question. What are you using to pay for tasks? Like, if I want, if I want to submit something to Troopit, I, want, I have a task. I want to, I want to give it to Troopit to use. What am I using to pay for that? Is so it true or CPU? You would use a CPU token in this case. Okay. So the tasking token, and the and, and uh, the staking mechanism in which how people double stake gives you the price discovery of what the rate is of a one CPU to how much how much true relative relative. Remember, there's three points here, right? There's the Yes, relative to TRU, we feel we've established that through the, this median overall local mm -hmm. prices. Okay, that gives you now the price that discovery. doesn't answer the question of how do I know the CPU is actually valuable, priced correctly relative to you U.S. dollars, which yeah, is I think like the task, the like the, the amount mentioned. of resources. Yeah, so like that's kind of like I kind of wanted to know how do I go for, as a user to I have a task I would like it done in a reasonable amount of of, of money. What do I buy? And then how do I have somewhat of an assurance that the answer I get back is worth the money I paid? Okay, fair enough. So, so let, me, let me answer the second question first. Um, obviously, you know, trading crypto for fiat is, is slightly out of the scope of the, of the protocol design, but mm -hmm. obviously, you know, if there would be a market, people. Well, let me. I guess I am in answering now the first question first. But in order to change any crypto token for U.S. dollars, you find someone who can buy it just like you do anywhere else. So mm -hmm. that's not. But the question of how is it actually priced? Well, here's you. You basically. Um, I mean, obviously that. The key thing from the protocol point of view is to make sure that if a market exists that it doesn't screw up sort of the internal pricing of the, of the protocol itself. Okay, so let's, let me just break it down. Let me ask a simple question. So what happens if the CPU price is too low relative to USD? That it means I see that one task, one task is cost one CPU or one, one let's say one computation cycle costs one CPU. And I as a solver think that's too low. It's not worth my time. So I'm not gonna argue that actually, actually it is worth your time. So as a rational solver or verifier that you should actually do the task anyway and you should just hodl the reward token. And the reason is that if you, if you hodl the reward token, then this means that the total net supply in the whole system, CPU plus TRU um, is decreasing. So everyone who's hodling is you know, sort of keeping the supply but the number that are in circulation is decreasing. So you can see that over time, eventually, whoever's hodling the tokens will accumulate all of them eventually if this process continues. So decrease in supply means increase in price relative to real market value, meaning US, US dollars. So since you since you hodled the token, you actually in the long run make, make more um, because of the, uh, your actual gain relative to USD should be um, more than adequately compensate you, even though at the time that you performed the service, you didn't get perhaps market rate, let's say. Mm -hmm. I don't know, does that make sense? I mean, on, on the other side, you know, if, if the price would be too high, well, fine, then we just adjust our median prices and we absorb some of those. Um, we, you, you basically 
if CPU price is too high and I said, I'm willing to work for lower, great. So I lower my median price and then any tokens that I'm holding by TRU that essentially, you know, contracts again, the um, supply. And again, I've, well, let's see. They should make the, um, uh, yeah, I mean, the total token supply decreases, then that, that should be reflected in, in that. Any fluctuation in the price should be absorbed by the, the TRU token as opposed to the CPU. And that's because the service providers are adjusting it accordingly so that CPU tends toward the market price, whereas any fluctuations in the market, you know, is, is absorbed by the TRU. So the ideal scenario, of course, is that, you know, more and more, as more and more people use the ser service, then more and more value is absorbed by the TRU token. So that's okay. So like as, as a, as a, as a user then I have, I have, I have some CPU in my hand and I, and I have a task that I would like to do. So I outsource that task. I pay for it in CPU. Um, and what happens, I guess I, is, is first off, is that correct? I, I issue a task and I pay for it in CPU or do I pay for it in TRU? Pay, pay with CPU. Perfect. Perfect. I pay for it with the CPU. So let's say it's only one CPU because it's a relatively simple task or, or whatever. Um, okay. Now, when at that market rate in terms of, I guess, the reward of the person who ends up getting that task within the network, that is based on the average of all of the local rates that each of the miners have, have set, correct? Right. That's right. I didn't explicitly say, but the reward rate is the median rate. Okay. So that, that then tells the person, uh, that then, I guess, the person who gets that, uh, the, the solver does that, does it correctly, gets the reward for that based on the median rate. And that's, that's basically the life cycle of, of a, a good use case of someone offloading a task into the TrueBit network. Is that correct? Right. But of course, the person that's actually performing the task might also be a task giver themselves, right? And so that they would go ahead and convert that back and then issue another task. So the idea is it's a community, right? And, and if, you are, if you leave your computer on in between tasks of your own that you're solving and you're helping other people increase the security of their tasks, well, then you essentially can hopefully use the, the machine for free. And then, and then one more thing that I want to clarify to make sure that I understand things correctly and our audience does too. Um, the CPU that I use to pay for my task gets destroyed. It mints new TRU. Right. Sorry. Yeah, that's right. So you. Okay. Perfect. Correct. So, okay. So the process of, so you have, you have this kind of minting destroying um, mechanism in which people who pay for things in CPU gets destroyed at the market rate, which is the average of all of people's local markets, to the solver who ends up doing it. That then can then be used at, I guess, across the network to then buy more CPU based on whatever local rate people are offering. Right. I mean, if you cash out immediately, then you just get, if it was the one CPU okay. task, you do the reward, you cash out immediately, then you get whatever your share, like if there were I just, I just really wanted to get a clear understanding of what the life cycle of both of these tokens from someone submitting a job to what happens to those tokens to then it then becoming the original token itself, right? So I think we now have a firm grasp on that. We can move forward. Okay. So my problem is, it, what does one compute mean? Is it one operation on, on the system? And if so, like what happens if I run out of CPU tokens in the middle of my job? Like what? how do I know that I have enough to pay for this job um, if the job itself is indeterminate. 
Well, you, it, it can't be a determinant. I mean, that's the whole point of TrueBit is that you must, I mean, There's, first of all- You're sitting deterministic jobs. I mean, the job is deterministic, but the length of the job might not be known up front, right? Well, that's probably not a good, good use. I mean, you you just need an upper bound. You don't have to say exactly. You know what I mean? Maybe you don't need to know exactly how many steps it is, but you do need to know sort of what the what the you need to have an upper bound on how many steps it's going to. So. Whereas a smart contract has kind of like this built-in gas limit that the whole network runs on, what you've basically built is a personal budget for gas. It's like CPU is kind of your own version of gas, and then I say I'm giving this particular task a, a its own limit in CPU, and this is how much I'm willing to pay. If it exhausts that limit, the, t the job stops, it fails, correct? And they get compensated, and I burn my CPU. Is that right? Right. So the correct answer in, in TrueBit, you're a solver is is not allowed to, you can't ignore the amount of task steps that have been paid for. If you ran out of steps, the answer should be, you know, error. It yeah. should, if, and if you, if you give the correct answer, then you should lose the challenge. You know, there's no margin for error in that case. Cause like there can only, it has to be deterministic. So it can't be like, well, yeah, but I ran a few extra steps and I, I was just, I'm a nice guy. I just want to help out. It's no big deal. No, I mean, yeah. yeah. The reason I say this because, like, for instance, if you had some sort of recursive operation, sometimes you don't know how long that's going to last up front. Depending on the data set, it could be 12 steps. On the other data set, it could be, I don't know, 450 steps. You don't, well, that makes no sense. But you know what I mean? Like, it, it could be something that oh, kind of does. You don't know up front necessarily how many CPU cycles are required to solve a particular piece of data. And if you did, you'd have already done the work yourself. Um, Mm -hmm. Most of the time. So you kind of have to budget. And that budget is like your own personal gas limit for the task you're trying to accomplish. Right. Well, they I, spend I, more than what they used, right? So if they own, if they, if you have 1,000 CPUs, and this is a small number, I would assume, but you have 1,000 CPUs and you want to send a program out and somebody solves it in 400, they get compensated 400. No, no, you get, uh, you have, you get you get paid for what however many steps that you paid for that's the reward amount that that gets paid out so i see i see i mean it's a little different i mean well i don't know so if you let, let's take the case where you're doing this on the cloud so you went to amazon and you said i have a job i don't know how long this is going to take but i want to start running this job i mean in that case i guess what you'd normally do is you would just sort of start paying by the hour yeah you I pay mean, by the hour i guess yeah, and if you ran out of hours, you would just say, "Okay, I don't know if this is going to converge sure, to sure. output or not, but I'm going to I'm going to throw it, put in another quarter, right?" Well, they have a billing mechanism, so if you it's like you're billed monthly, if you don't pay your bill, they shut you off. Then, you know, it's not like you have to literally pay from a budget every hour. Whereas with this case, it's very much on demand, um, which is a different scenario than AWS. Um, and so I, I'm just kind of curious, like. How, what happens if somebody just decides to like send a ton of tasks out that they can't sufficiently they they don't they're not able to support with budget you know what I mean? Well, I mean, I guess you if if you didn't put enough 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 gas, you'll the, the report will come back and say you didn't have enough gas, right? <laughs> right. But they're still wasting their cycle. Do they actually they get the money back? I guess right. Or oh no, your well, report. Guess, guess my report comes back that says, ah, yeah, you're not getting any results because guess what? You didn't pay enough 
to pay for it. And so I just wasted my money, essentially. Is that correct? Um, yeah, I guess essentially, yeah, that's 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 on you as the task giver. But remember, our task givers are not also necessarily people directly, right? I mean, they're smart contracts. So, I mean, it's the same thing with a smart contract. You got to know how much gas. To, I mean, think of it. It's no different from the way that Ethereum smart contract works. You got to say how much gas am I putting in for my transaction? If you run out of gas, well, that's that's too bad. But, you know, the network still did what it was. You know, the miners don't don't work for free. So <laughs> it's it's yeah. exactly the same principle. And so the inclination I have when I hear about Truebit and based off other things, you know, I've, I've heard is to go, oh, is this like Golem? Um, in that you can do like off-chain rendering and that stuff. And then when I hear stuff like the video encoding, I'm like, that's a pretty like solid like task to distribute out to people and farm out. Um, and you're doing it already, right? Um, yeah, we have, a, we have a sample transcoding task that you can like, How do I pre-calculate how much energy or how much computation it would cost to transcode unless I actually do the transcoding myself? But I mean, that's not unpredictable, right? Is it? Okay. I mean, I would, I mean, a task like that, you, you know how much time it's going to take. I mean, like, yeah, there's a lot of computational tasks you could know, like, in a, 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 a general sense, like a, an approximation on how much computation it actually does and how much time it takes, which could then give you an upper bound on how much CPU to pay for that. And remember, we're talking about a cost, which is for running this on Truebit, which is probably fractions of a penny, right? I mean, so just put in, the, you're not sure, just put in the nickel the first time and, and make it work. And if you see that you overpaid, you know, say la vie, you'll you mine some tasks and you earn it back the credits, right? Yeah, hopefully it'll always remain that way because it's, it's all it's all going back to the community, right? Think you can also build like a, a, some sort of test net, which helps you suss that stuff out and people are restricted. Sure, number yeah, you just run it, you can run it on the, the the test net where you can get free tokens and that's really you can't make more than x requests and then that way you're not <laughs> actually worried about it yeah that makes sense yeah. exactly the free net is basically what it would be and then there's the pay for net which would do the recurring tasks all right there's uh, a lot of ways to work that, so i think that's neat definitely that's fine i definitely have a better understanding on uh kind of how you do market discovery or like price discovery on tasks and uh i, I think that's an it's just, I, i'm seeing uh, further use of the like kind of two token model for like a double sided markets for um, people to find out how much they should pay for something and keeping people honest in terms of how much they're offering for it. You can see like kind of the make or die scenario start that type of thing. This is a situ similar situation where you have uh, uh, people working together to try and come up with the correct price of things so that both part both sides of the party are, are happy with the transaction. And to do that in a decentralized way is a really difficult thing to do. I mean, there's specifically for make or die, you know, how much collateral do you put in? That's that's a question that was recently addressed by um, the balance uh, project. So mm -hmm. that's another, maybe you guys, if you haven't talked to them yet, would be another interesting um, follow-up to this conversation. I'd be happy to make the intro there. But um, but yeah, they're, they're talking about the deposits. They actually talk about Truebit as being the application there. How much we didn't? What we didn't talk about in this talk is how much deposit do you have to put in to Truebit to to make sure that you're you've you've you know have enough um, deposit to cover the cost of a verification game. And in this case, you know, I guess you know maybe you can sort of deduce it based on the model. But it's it's also I mean balance is also a reputation system. So clear. I just want to emphasize again here that there is no there's no central party that's dictating 
any of the protocol. There's no, you know, it's, I don't have any special rights in the system that, that you wouldn't either. It's just like, it's sort of, um, there's no reputation, I guess, is sort of um, why the, that's a little bit higher bar, I guess, in, in some ways. But, um, you know, again, the, at the end of the day, it, the, what, what a consumer is going to say, hey, does this job do the task I want? And did it do it at a, a value that I did it? Was the price, you know, what I expected? You know, was the quality of service good? I mean, those are the, the questions we should really be asking. So, um, you know, obviously this is, Truebit is also kind of, you know, an, an ideal, I guess, but it also, I think it works. I mean, there's, there isn't really a lot of um, inefficiency in, in this, in this market. I mean, the, the goal was to make an efficient market. And I think that's sort of uh, hopefully what, what we've done here. Yeah. Um, sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Right. And then, and, and like, Ori again, like speaks like volumes of praise for the project and, you know, I've not yet personally had to use it, um, but it sounds like something I might want to try out. Um, and I've got a server sitting in, sitting in the room behind me. I might go look some yeah. stuff up. <laughs> I, I can actually think of some things I'd actually might want to use that for now. Um, so that's, we're currently running out of time. Um, where can people find out more in terms of like how to get started, how to participate, um, if they have any questions from the, the conversation we've just had? Sure. So uh, I would say, you know, if you're read, you can obviously the Trivet white paper, if okay. you want to sort of give this a test run, you know, you can find a link to the GitHub there, run the Git, you can run Trivet OS inside of a Docker image. So uh, anything that runs Docker. So, and then, you know, if you're interested, doing a deeper dive on the token model, you know, I check out the, um, the talk that we just did at TAG, which I just pinned to Twitter. And there's there's also um, uh, a paper, which I guess on my webpage, I mean, we haven't really sort of uh, advertised it too much, but it's, 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 um, it is on archive and on my, it's no secret. So, um, <laughs> um, so, 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 so yeah, that's, that's, that should be, enough to to get started but yeah and i'm happy if there you know people get started and have additional questions you know feel free to reach out cool will do all right thanks appreciate it jason it was uh really good very enlightening appreciate it hey great talking to you guys yeah.